The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Ladies, at Essentia Health, you're not just a patient. You're a partner in your healthcare journey. We'll get to the heart of your health questions, even the ones you're embarrassed to ask. We'll find solutions to fit your unique needs and lifestyle, because here, we're in it together. Feel confident in your care and in yourself. Schedule a women's health appointment with an Essentia Health provider today. Click the banner to learn more. This is the London Visited Podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi there, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go back for part two of our three-part podcast on St Paul's Cathedral, a historic and iconic venue in London. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join a group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Also, you can have a look by going to www.patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And now to this week's podcast. We start with a poem which was written at the time by Edmund Carlew Benley. Sir Christopher Wren said, I'm going to dine with some men. If anyone calls, say I'm designing St Paul's. In designing St Paul's, Christopher Wren had to meet many challenges. He had to create a fitting cathedral to replace Old St Paul's as a place of worship and a landmark within the City of London. He had to satisfy the requirements of the church and the tastes of a royal patron, as well as respecting the essentially medieval tradition of English church building, which developed to accommodate the liturgy. Wren was familiar with contemporary Renaissance and Baroque trends in Italian architecture and had visited France, where he studied the work of others. Wren's design developed through five general stages. The first survives as a single drawing and part of a model. The scheme, usually called the first model design, appears to have consisted of a circular domed vestibule, possibly based on the Pantheon in Rome, and a rectangular church of basilica form. The plan may have been influenced by the temple church. It was rejected because it was not thought stately enough. Wren's second design was a Greek cross, which was thought by the clerics not to fulfil the requirements of Anglican liturgy. Wren's third design is embodied in the Great Model of 1673. The model, made of oak and plaster, cost over £500, approximately £32,000 in today's money, and it is over 13 feet tall and 21 feet long. This design retained the form of the Greek cross design, but extended it with a nave. His critics, members of a committee commissioned to rebuild the church, and clergy decried the design as too dissimilar to other English churches, to suggest any continuity within the Church of England. Another problem was that the entire design would have to be completed all at once because the eight central piers that supported the dome, instead of being completed in stages and opened up for use before construction finished, 
as was customary. The grey model was Wren's favourite design. He thought it a reflection of Renaissance beauty. After the great model, Wren resolved not to make further models and not to expose his drawings publicly, which he found did nothing but lose time and subject his business many times to incompetent judges. The great model survives and is housed within the cathedral itself. Wren's fourth design is known as the Warren design because it received a royal warrant for rebuilding. In this design, Wren sought to reconcile Gothic and predominant style of English churches to a better manner of architecture. It has the longitudinal Latin cross plan of a medieval church. It is of one and a half stories and has classical porticos at the west and transept ends, influenced by Ingo Jones' addition to Old St Paul's. It is roofed at the crossing by a wide shallow dome supporting a drum with a second cupola, from which rises a spire of seven diminishing stages. Vaughan Hart has suggested that influence in design of the spire may have been drawn from the Oriental Pagoda. Not used at St Paul's, the concept was applied in the spire of St Bride's, Fleet Street. This plan was rotated slightly on its site so that it aligned, not with true east, but with sunrise on Easter of the year construction began. This small change in configuration was informed by Wren's knowledge of astronomy. The final design as built differs substantially from the official Warren design. Wren received permission from the king to make ornamental changes to the submitted design, and Wren took great advantage of this. Many of these changes were made over the course of the 30 years as the church was constructed, and the most significant was to the dome. He raised another structure over the first cupola, a thick cone of brick, so as to support a stone lantern of an elegant figure, and he covered and hid out of sight the brick cone and another cupola of timber and lead. And between this and the cone are easy stairs that ascend to the lantern. The final design was strongly rooted in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The saucer domes over the nave were inspired by the Church of the Val de Grace, which Wren had seen during a trip to Paris in 1665. The date of the laying of the first stone of the cathedral is disputed. One contemporary account says it was the 21st of June, 1675, another the 25th and the third on the 28th. There is, however, general agreement that the stone was laid in June, 1675. Edward Strong later claimed it was laid by his elder brother, Thomas Strong, one of the two master stonemasons appointed by Wren at the beginning of the work. Wren's challenge was to construct a large cathedral on a relatively weak clay soil of London. St Paul's is unusual among cathedrals in that there is a crypt, the largest in Europe, under the entire building, rather than just under the eastern end. The crypt serves a structural purpose. Although it is extensive, half the space of the crypt is taken up by massive piers, which spread the weight of the much slimmer piers of the church above. While the towers and domes of most cathedrals are supported on four piers, Wren designed the dome of St Paul's to be supported on eight, achieving a broader distribution of weight at the level of the foundations. The foundation settled as the building progressed, and Red made structural changes in response. One of the design problems that confronted Wren was to create a landmark dome, tall enough to visually replace the lost tower of St Paul's, while at the same time appearing visually satisfying when viewed from inside the building. Wren planned a double-shelled dome, as at St Peter's Basilica. His solution to the visual problem was to separate the heights of the inner and outer dome to a much greater extent than had been done by Michelangelo at St Peter's, drafting both as catenary curves, rather than as hemispheres. Between the inner and the outer domes, Wren inserted a brick cone which supports both the timbers of the outer, lead-covered dome 
and the weight of the ornate stone lantern that rises above it. Both the cone and the inner dome were 18 inches thick and supported by wrought iron chains at intervals in a brick cone and around the cornice of a peristyle of the inner dome to prevent spreading and cracking. The Warren design showed external buttress on the ground floor level. These were not a classical feature and were one of the first elements Wren changed. Instead, he made the walls of the cathedral particularly thick to avoid the need for external buttresses altogether. The clerestorium vault are reinforced with flying buttresses, which were added at a relatively late stage of the design to give extra strength. These are concealed behind the screen wall of the upper story, which was added to keep the building's classical style intact, to add sufficient visual mass to balance the appearance of the dome, and which, by its weight, counters the thrust of the buttress on the lower walls. During the extensive period of design and rationalization, Wren employed from 1684 Nicholas Hawksmoor as his principal assistant. Between 1696 and 1711, William Dickinson was measuring clerk. Joshua Marshall, until his early death in 1678, and Thomas and his brother Edward Strong were master masons, the latter two working on the construction for its entirety. John Langland was the master carpenter for over 30 years. St Paul's Cathedral is built in a restrained Baroque style which represents Wren's rationalization of the traditions of English medieval cathedrals with the inspiration of Palladio, a classical style of Ingo Jones, the Baroque style of the 17th century Rome, and the buildings by Mansart and others he had seen in France. It is particularly in its plan that St Paul's reveals medieval influences, like the great medieval cathedrals of York and Winchester. St Paul's is comparatively long for its width, and has strong projecting transepts. It has much emphasis on its facade, which has been designed to define rather than conceal the form of the building behind it. In plan, the towers jut just beyond the width of the aisles as they do at Wells Cathedral. Wren's uncle Matthew Wren was the Bishop of Ely, and having worked for his uncle, Wren was familiar with the unique octagonal lantern tower over the crossing of Ely Cathedral, which spanned the aisles as well as the central nave unlike the central towers and domes of most churches. Wren adapted this characteristic in designing the Dome of St Paul's. In section, St Paul's also maintains a medieval form, having the aisles much lower than the nave and a defined cloistry. The most notable exterior feature is the dome, which rises 365 feet, 111 meters, to the cross at its summit. It dominates views of the city. The height of 365 feet is explained by Wren's interest in astronomy. Until the late 20th century, St Paul's was the tallest building on the city's skyline, designed to be surrounded by the delicate spires of Wren's other city churches. The dome is described by Sir Bannister Fletcher as probably the finest in Europe, by Helen Gardner as majestic, and by Sir Nicholas Pevsner as one of the most perfect in the world. Sir John Summerson said that Englishmen and even some foreigners consider it to be without equal. Wren drew inspiration from Michelangelo's dome of St. Peter's Basilica and that of Mansart's church of the Val de Grace, which he had visited. Unlike those of St. Peter's and Val de Grace, the dome of St. Paul's rises in two clearly defined stories of masonry, which, together with a lower unadorned footing, equal a height of about 95 feet. From the time of the Greek cross design, it is clear that Wren favoured a continuous colonnade around the drum of the dome, rather than the arrangement of alternating windows and projecting columns that Michelangelo had used and which had been employed by Mansart. In the finished structure, Wren creates a diversity and appearance of strength by placing niches between the columns in every fourth opening. The peristyle serves to buttress both the inner dome 
and the brick cone which rises internally to support the lantern. Above the peristyle rises the second stage surrounded by a bolstrated balcony, called the stone gallery. This attic stage is ornamented with alternating pilasters and rectangular windows which are set just below the cornice, creating a sense of lightness. Above this attic rises the dome, covered with lead and ribbed in accordance with the spacing of the pilasters. It is pierced by eight light windows just below the lantern, but these are barely visible. They allow light to penetrate through the openings in the brick cone, which illuminates the interior apex of this shell, particularly visible from within the cathedral through the ocular opening of the lower dome. The lantern, like the visible masonry of the dome, rises in stages. The most unusual characteristic of this structure is that of the square plan, rather than circular or octagonal. The tallest stage takes the form of a tempito with four columned porticos facing the cardinal points. Its lower level is surrounded by the golden gallery and its upper level supports a small dome from which rises a cross on a golden ball. The total weight of the lantern is about 850 tons. For the Renaissance architect designing the west front of the large church or cathedral, the universal problem was how to use a facade to unite the high central nave with the lower aisles and visually harmonious hull. Since Alberti's additions to the Santa Maria Novella in Florence, this was usually achieved by the simple expedient of linking the sides to the centre with large brackets. This is the solution that Wren saw employed by Mansart at Val de Grace. Another feature employed by Mansart was boldly projecting classical portico with paired columns. Wren faced the additional challenge of incorporating towers into the design, as had been planned at St. Peter's Basilica. At St. Peter's, Carlo Madano had solved this problem by constructing a narthex and stretching a huge screen facade across it, differentiated at the centre by a pediment. The towers at St. Peter's were not built above the parapet. Wren's solution was to employ a classical portico, as at Val de Grace, but rising through two storeys and supported on paired columns. The remarkable feature here is that the lower storey of this portico extends to the full width of the aisles, while the upper section defines the nave that lies behind it. The gaps between the upper stage of the portico and the towers on either side are bridged by a narrow section of wall with an arched top window. The towers stand outside the width of the aisles, but screen two chapels located immediately behind them. The lower parts of the towers continue the theme of the outer walls, but are differentiated from them in order to create an appearance of strength. The windows of the lower story are smaller than those of the side walls and are deeply recessed, a visual indication of the thickness of the wall. The paired pilasters at each corner project boldly. Above the main cornice, which unites the towers with the portico and the outer walls, the details are boldly scaled, in order to read well from the street below and from a distance. The towers rise above the cornice from a square block plinth, which is plain apart from a large oculi, that on the south being filled by the clock, while that on the north is void. The towers are composed of two complementary elements, a central cylinder rising through these tiers in a series of stacked drums and paired Corinthian columns at the corners with buttresses above them, which serve to unify the drum shape with the square plinth on which it stands. The entablature above the columns breaks forward over them to express both elements, tying them together in a single horizontal band. The cap, an ogee-shaped dome, supports a gilded pine cone-shaped finial. It is unclear whether the final is pinecone or a pineapple. The website of the trust claims it is a pineapple. The pinecone, however, is a common motive in religious, especially Christian, architecture. 
This is most prominent at the courtyard of the Belvedere. It is thus plausible that Christopher Wren based his design on this inspiration. It can also be argued that a pineapple has a crown, while a pinecone doesn't. The ornament final in this work has no crown, thus a logical argument can be made for the pinecone over the pineapple-inspired design. The transepts each have a semicircular entrance portico. The building is of two stories of ashlar masonry, above a basement and surrounded by a balustrade above the upper cornice. The balustrade was added against Wren's wishes in 1718. The internal bays are marked externally by paired pilasters with Corinthian capitals at the lower level and composite at the upper level. Where the building behind is of only one story, at the aisles of both nave and choir, the upper story of the exterior wall is sham. It serves as a dual purpose of supporting the buttresses of the vault and providing a satisfying appearance when viewed rising above the buildings of the height of the 17th century city. This appearance may still be seen from across the River Thames. Between the pilasters on both levels are windows. Those of the lower story have semicircular heads and are surrounded by continuous mouldings of a Roman style, rising to decorative keystones. Beneath each window is a floral swag by Grindling Gibbons, constituting the finest stone carving on the building and some of the greatest architectural sculpture in England. A frieze with similar swags runs in a band below the cornice, tying the arches of the windows and the capitals. The upper windows are of restrained classical form, with pediments set on columns, but are blind and contain niches. Beneath these niches, and in the basement level, are small windows with segmental tops, the glazing of which catches the light and visually links them to the large windows of the aisles. The height from the ground level to the top of the parapet is approximately 110 feet. The original fencing, designed by Wren, was dismantled in the 1870s. The surveyor for the government of Toronto had it shipped to Toronto, where it has since adorned High Park. So, I hope you've enjoyed our second part of our three, looking at St Paul's Cathedral and very much looking today at the architecture and the external building. Next week, we look at the internal building in our third and final part of the podcast. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, www.londonvisited.co.uk or through our social media. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.